Okay, again, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation, and we'll be looking at those last few verses, beginning in verse number 15. Uh, probably the most sought-after religious artifact in the history of the world is the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, all sorts of people have chased after the Ark of the Covenant. The Jews want to find the Ark of the Covenant because it's central to their worship. It's part of their Day of Atonement. And uh, they have searched and searched for the Ark. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, there's all sorts of digs going on. And I think one of the things that they're digging for are to find those artifacts that were in the temple because their goal one day is to rebuild the temple of God. And the Ark of the Covenant to them is central to that. There are a lot of Christians who have chased after the Ark. Because I think there's people who believe that somehow if we find that ark, it validates our religion. And so some people have chased for the, after the ark of the covenant for that reason. There are others who have gone after the ark of the covenant because they believe that it contains some type of occultic powers that will transfer over to them and uh, give them power over the people of this world. The Knights Templars. Back in the Middle Ages, they were the forerunners of the Freemasons today. And, and uh, they spent a lot of money and a lot of effort looking for the Ark of the Covenant because they wanted to get the power that was in the Ark. The Nazis actually had a unit, a special unit, that was assigned to finding the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and they were looking for the power of the ark. Hitler had ordered them to find the ark so that he could harness that power, power uh, as part of his goal for global conquest. So just where is the ark of the covenant? I wonder where it is. Well, there are a lot of people that believe it's buried somewhere, as I mentioned earlier, beneath the Temple Mount. And so there, there's all sorts of digs taking place trying to find uh, the ark there. Uh, but there are traditions, uh, some valid traditions, that say that the Ark of the Covenant was moved. One tradition says that in the days of Manasseh, you remember Manasseh, he was this terrible king, and, and he offered up children for sacrifice to his god of Molech. And he did that in the temple. And the Levites, in order to protect the integrity of the temple, took these artifacts and supposedly they moved them uh, to an Egyptian island called El Fatin. And uh, they built a temple there for the Ark of the Covenant. And there actually is evidence today of a temple that was built there, but no trace of the Ark of the Covenant has been found. Uh, another tradition says that when things got hot in Elphatine for the Jews, then they moved the Ark of the Covenant to Ethiopia. And you've probably heard about this tradition. And a lot of people claim that the Ark of the Covenant is in Ethiopia today. And uh, some people have claimed that they have actually seen the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia. So far we don't have any pictures, any evidence of that, but, but that's a, you know, a pretty strong tradition. There's still another tradition that says that earlier, much earlier, in 926 B.C., earlier than the time of Manasseh, uh, Pharaoh Shishak came in and he defeated Israel and he ransacked Jerusalem and he took the ark 
and he took it back to Egypt, and he buried it in a city called Tanis. Now, that should sound familiar if you're familiar with the story of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, because it was in Tanis where he discovered the Ark, and then it was taken by the Nazis in the rest of the movies. He's chasing down the Ark. So uh, that's fiction. So we know that Indiana Jones really hasn't found the Ark. I mean, some people, don't. I don't think, think that's fiction, but it is fiction. But no one's found the Ark. They haven't found it in Tanis. They haven't found it in Ethiopia. They haven't found it on the Temple Mount. So where is it? Where is it? Well, I'm going to show you where it is today. I'm going to tell you exactly where it is today. So dig with me into this little text we have in, in uh, chapter number 11 and pick up with me in verse number 15. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world, listen to this, have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Ha oh, happy day. I mean, you here you have this scene in heaven. You're out of time and you're in eternity. And you hear these voices and what are they celebrating? They're celebrating the fact that the time has come for the Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign over this earth. So in earthly time, where are we going to? We're jumping forward to the end of the great tribulation. Now, last week, if you remember, where were we at? We were at the beginning of the great tribulation, the first three and a half years of the great tribulation, and there we saw the two witnesses who uh, declare that this judgment is coming announced, and announce the fact that people need to repent or else they're going to find themselves in hell. Well, you look at Revelation and there's a lot of movement back and forth between time. When we started the book of Revelation, we were in the first century, uh, the first century A.D. And then when we went to chapters 4 and 5, we were in the church right after, I mean, we were in heaven right after the church had been raptured up to heaven. And then when we got to, uh, we get to verse 15 here, we're at the end of the great tribulation and the Lord Jesus is ruling and reigning over the earth at the time of his second coming. Uh, when we get to verse 18, we're going to jump all the way down to, to the great white throne judgment which comes at the end of the millennium a thousand years later. When we get to verse 19, we're going to go back and we're going to be back at the middle of the tribulation as the judgments are about to be poured out on this earth. Next week, when we go to chapter 12, we're going to go all the way back to the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, why do I tell you all of that? Not to confuse you, and it might sound pretty confusing. But the reason I tell you all that is to let you know that you can't put Revelation in some kind of exact chronological order. And when people try to do that, they come up with all sorts of misinterpretations of the text. You've got to let the text speak for itself. You've got to look at the text and determine at what point in time on earth the author is speaking about in order to understand what he's speaking about. I made a reference a couple of I guess it been about a month or so back when we were in the earlier part of Revelation, I made a reference to the movie Prestige. How many of you have ever seen the movie Prestige? If you've never seen it, it's a, 
I don't like recommending movies because there's probably some bad part. You'll say, why would you recommend that? But it's actually a very good movie. But it's quite confusing the first time you watch the movie because the, the author of the script uses a method very similar to John's. He goes back and forth in time in order to develop his characters and develop, to develop his plot. When the movie starts, when it begins, there's, the, the movie begins with one of, there's two competing magicians. And when the movie begins, one of the magicians is killing another one of the magicians. And then right after that scene, you go to the magician who did the murder. You go to his trial. Then you go back all the way back to when they were friends and where their rivalry began. And then you go forward to a scene in America where one of the magicians is looking for this great trick, the greatest trick ever, and so he can beat his friend at this, this magic arts that they're doing. And then it goes back and forth in time, and then finally you come to the conclusion at the end of the plot. But the author has a purpose in that. The first time you watch the music, movie, I've got to tell you, it's really confusing. The second time, it's a little confusing. The third time, you understand exactly what he's done. In moving back and forth through time, he's developed these characters, and he's, he's made the points that he wants to make about the plot, and that's more central to him than a chronological development of the plot. And that's exactly what happens in Revelation. The first time I ever read Revelation, it was the most confusing thing I'd ever read in my life. I don't know about you. The second time I read it, it was pretty confusing. I probably have read Revelation at least 15 times through myself already, and it's still confusing to some degree. But I understand what the Lord is doing here, writing through John. What his main concern, his main concern is so we can figure out exactly when things happen, so we can figure out exactly who the Antichrist is. His main concern is that we understand the plot and that we understand or we learn a lot about the main character of the plot and who's the main character of the plot. What is this book? It's the revelation. It's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. He's the main character. And that's what all this book is about. And that's why he's going back and forth through time so that you can understand the plot, so that you can understand more about who Jesus Christ really is. So going back now to verse number 15, he's moving forward past the great tribulation in order to develop the plot, you understand? So he's moving all the way into the great tribulation and Jesus is crowned King of kings and Lord of lords on earth as well as in heaven. Now why does he do that? Well, because we're going to be reading about some really terrible things that are going to happen before that, when all of these wrath, all of the wrath of God is poured out on this earth. And so I think what he's doing right here, he's vindicating God. He's showing, he's showing that God has purpose in these terrible judgments that are going to take place on this earth. And 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 he's in chapter eleven. He gave us the two witnesses to vindicate God because you would look at all these terrible things that are going taking place on earth and you would say to yourself, how could God do this without warning these people? Well, what's the first part of chapter 11 all about? He's warning these people. How could John even write these things down and, and be a man and write all of this down? We'll go back to chapter 10 and what was chapter 10 about? John ate the little book and the little book was bitter and the little book was sweet. Why was it bitter? 
it was bitter because of all these terrible judgments. But it was sweet because, look at verse number 15, because the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is sweet. That is sweet to the soul, but there's going to be a lot of bitter that takes place for us to get to that point. Now, there are some people who don't interpret it that way. They believe, they have a theology called realized eschatology. You've probably heard of that, uh, the kingdom now eschatology. In other words, that Jesus has already taken over the rule and reign of this earth. I mean, the kingdom of God is already in place on this earth. Well, ask Kim Jong-un about that. I don't think he would agree with that. I don't think the Ayatollahs in Iran would agree with that. I don't think Putin would agree with that. I don't even know if Trump would agree with that. I don't know if anybody with any common sense would agree with that. Either he's in charge of this earth, or these evil leaders are in charge, and he has his sovereign will up above all of these things that are happening. I don't believe right now that the kingdom of the world have become the kingdoms of the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. I certainly believe that Jesus is sovereign. He's certainly sovereign over what happens on this earth. But as of yet, he is not in total control of what's going on on this earth. He isn't, and you know, I can't even say that. He's not yet physically on this earth, leading this earth as the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, let me, let's go back to the Psalms for a minute and I think we can get a perfect description of where we stand on this earth right now. And, and, and you can kind of see how it's a paradox. The Lord is sovereign over what's taking place, but, he's all, but also the, the kings and rulers of this earth are against the Lord. Go with me back to Psalms number two. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Go back to the middle of your Bible and find Psalms chapter two. We'll just look at a couple of verses there. Listen to what he says in verse number one, chapter two, verse number one. He says, why do the nations rage? Now, this is the state of the earth as it is now. The nations rage, and who do they rage against? The people plot a vain thing. Verse number two, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed one, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now that's the state of the world that we live in now in the 21st century. I don't think you could define it any better than that. The rulers of this world are anti-Christ. They hate Christ. They don't want Christ, they will not have this man rule over them. They don't want anything to do with him. Our government, the, I mean, the closest thing you can get to a Judeo-Christian government is the government of the United States, and we have totally turned our back on Jesus Christ. We have become against Christ. Then he says in verse number four, he says, here's God's reaction to all of that. He who sits on the throne shall laugh. Don't worry about God. You don't have to defend God. 
You don't have to defend God's word. That'd be like defending a tiger in your backyard. You don't have to defend him. You do not have to defend God. The Lord sits on his throne and he sees all of this and he laughs. But it's funny to him, but the Lord will hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. In other words, they're not going to listen to him. They're not going to listen to the prophets. When the great tribulation, before it begins, they're not going to listen to the two witnesses, and God is going to hold them accountable for that and distress them in his deep displeasure. That's a picture of the coming great tribulation. Really, God has always judged this world, but in a more mightier way, in a more uh, serious way, he's going to judge this earth during the great tribulation because they don't listen to him, and they are in rebellion against him but until then until then don't worry about it because God is still in control because look what he says in verse number six you have set my you my king I have yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion now where's Zion that's the heavenly Jerusalem that's the heavenly Zion so God is still in control he controls this earth from heaven he only lets things go so far And all of these people who are against him are actually operating according to his will, according to his sovereign will. But now as we come back to verse number 15 and go back to Revelation now, we move forward in time to his second coming. You see what's happened here. And now the time has arrived for for the Lord to rule on the earth. And what happens at this point? The kingdoms of the world the kingdoms of, our, of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord, and praise breaks out in heaven. Let me tell you what, it's not only going to break out in heaven, it's going to break out in earth. I can't wait for that day when the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our Lord, and he reigns forever and ever. And so praise breaks out in heaven in verse, verses 16 and 17. And the 24 elders uh, who sat before God in their thrones felt, felt fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, the one who was, and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reign. So by the power of God, the Lord God Almighty, the rebellious kingdoms of this earth have been put down, and they have become the kingdoms of the Lord. Now, who is the Lord God Almighty? Who is the one who takes power? Let me tell you, he is none other than Jesus Christ, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. You remember when Jesus appeared to John back in Revelation chapter 1, he said, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come, Almighty God. That's who takes control. It's none other than Jesus Christ himself. And so in verse, and and so as we come into verse number 18, as the church praises Jesus Christ, the plot moves from the great tribulation uh, actually all the way to the judgment seats of Christ. Now look at verse number 18, and you'll see this movement here. The nations were angry, just as we saw in Psalms chapter 2. And your wrath has come. The great tribulation has taken place. Now the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of the Lord. Then 
the judgment seats take place. Watch what happens here. The time of the dead that he says, your, your wrath has come, the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, that's you, by the way, and those who fear your name, small and great. The small and the great will be rewarded. All of you small people are in here. I don't think we have many small people in here, but if you're a small person, got a lot of great people. But you're going to get rewarded too, just like Roy's going to get rewarded. Just like the great people. No, that wasn't funny. <laughs> I mean, all of us are going to get, I mean, aren't you glad that the small and the great get rewarded? Because I don't know about you, and I think probably most of us feel this way. We don't consider ourselves great. We consider ourselves small, but we're going to be rewarded too, just like the great are going to be rewarded. But watch this. And you should destroy those who destroy the earth. So in verse number 18, you see what's happened here. We've jumped all the way to the judgments. And there are two judgments. Remember, there's the Bema seat judgment of Jesus Christ, where the rewards are given to the saints. Then there's the great white throne judgment seat, where the, those who are not in Christ are sent to eternal hell. Now, when do those judgments take place? So you see where we have a chronological problem right here. Because the Bema seat of Christ, I believe, takes place during the wedding supper of the Lamb, which is the seven years before Christ comes back to this earth and rules and reigns on the earth. And at that time, at the Bema seat, we're going to be rewarded for our faith and our service to Jesus Christ. Now, what are our rewards? Well, you got some, let me tell you just some, some rewards you got right here. First of all, you're going to be rewarded with eternal life. I'm talking about eternal, full life. The life of God in you forever. You're going to be like Adam and Eve were in the garden, like they, the state they were in before they fell. You're going to glow like a light bulb. You're going to be glorious. As we saw in Zechariah, you're going to be like God almost. You're going to be almost like God at that point because you're going, to, you're, going to, you're, going to, you're going to be so full of God that you're going to be like God. And, and uh, not only that, you're, you know, you're going to have a glorified body. I guess that goes with what I just said right there. And then I believe that your place of service at the Bema seat, you will be assigned a place of service during the millennium. And if you've done if you've served the Lord faithful, faithfully and well, you might be in charge of the city of Gatlinburg up in the, up in the Smoky Mountains. I mean, I could take that. It'd be a great place to go. And as long as the Lord take, let me take my motorcycle up there with me. But if you hadn't done so well, you might be in charge of a sewage plant in Homa, Louisiana. No. Small or great. You're going to get a great, right? You kind of wonder, who is going to be in charge of the sewage plant in Homa, Louisiana? <laughs> but anyway, who's going to even be in Louisiana at that point? I love Louisiana, I'm just telling you. Now, no matter where you are or what you've done, if you're in Christ and you fear God, you fear the name of Jesus Christ. 
you've called upon the name of Jesus Christ, you are going to be rewarded. Now, here's the seat you don't want to appear at. If you die and you wake up and you're at this glowing white throne, you're in deep, deep trouble. When does that take place? We know that takes place at the end of the millennium. So he's jumped all the way from the beginning of the, the, the seven years of the Great Tribulation where you have the Bema seat during the wedding supper of the Lamb. He's jumped all the way over to the great white throne judgment seat. And at the great white throne judgment seat, the, those who destroy the earth will be destroyed. If you destroy the earth, you will be destroyed. Now all of us, have participated in some degree in destroying this earth. Now, when the Lord talks about destroying this earth, I mean, God is an environmentalist to some degree. He loves this world. He loves the, this creation. He loves the animals. I mean, a sparrow does not fall to the ground that the Lord doesn't know that that sparrow has fall, fallen to the ground. I mean, he loves that sparrow. He, you know, how many of us get to see all that goes on in the oceans? We don't get to see it, but the Lord gets to see it, and he doesn't want to see it destroyed. And so when we're greedy and we're, we're, we're not good stewards of what God's given us, we destroy the earth, well, we're going to be destroyed. But I, like I said, all of us have participated in the destruction of this earth to some degree. But that's where repentance comes in. That's where the blood of Christ comes in. That's where salvation comes in. We've been saved from all of that. And now we should be good stewards of what God has given us. And, and, and we'll be forgiven for what destruction we've done. But most importantly, as we destroy the earth, we hurt other people. And God's very concerned about how we treat other people. And if we treated other people wrong, what do we call that? We call that sin. And the wages of sin is death. And if you have not pay, had those sins paid for, then your wages are death. And if you're not in Jesus Christ and you wake up and you're not a born-again Christian, then you're going to find yourself at the great white throne judgment seat and you're going to be sent to hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Now, that's not, that's not good. Now, as we come to verse 19, we move back in time to the beginning of the last three and a half, to, to the beginning of, of the great trip, actually the beginning of the last three and a half years of the great tribulation, when after the two witnesses have spoken, after there's been this false peace on earth, then everything's going to, the wrath of God is going to be poured out, everything's going to crumble and break down. And remember I said, I believe that when the two witnesses are killed and then they're raised from the dead, the Antichrist is the one we're told who kills them. So he comes on the scene in Jerusalem, and at that point, at that very point, he commits the abomination of desolations. He declares himself in the temple, in the holy place, to be God. And once he declares himself to be God, and then at that point, all of the bowls are poured out, the trumpets are blown, the seals are opened, and all these terrible judgments that take place during those times, they begin to happen at that point. And that's the point we come to in verse number 19. So look at verse number 19. It says, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven. Do you know there was a temple of God in heaven? Who could care about the temple of God on earth when there's a temple of God in heaven? 
And the Ark of the Covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings and noises and thunderings and even an earthquake. That's how bad things are about to be shook up. They're going to be shook up so bad that heaven shakes. And great hell, like Louisiana's hell. Not H-E-L-L, H-A-I-L. All of this indicating now that the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of wrath are about to be poured out on this earth. Now, some of the seals have been opened, and I believe that's the appearance of the Antichrist. And, and as I said last week, I think maybe there's a great war that takes place. Maybe the Ezekiel 38 war, the Psalm 83 war. Something's taken place that's brought the Antichrist into power. And so there's been some real tragic events on this earth. But then all of a sudden there's this three-and-a-half-year peace. And then that pre, the Antichrist breaks that peace. He comes into Jerusalem. He declares himself to be God. And then all of these judgments are, of God now are about to take place on this earth. And you can see from all of this that what God is doing here in developing this narrative by moving back and forth through time, he's vindicating himself and vindicating himself for these judgments and also lifting up Jesus Christ as the rightful king of kings and lord of lords of this earth. And, 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 the, and you see the purpose of all of this. What's the purpose of all of this? Verse number 15, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of the, the Lord. And, and what are the end results of all of this? The end results of all of this, you and I are rewarded. You and I get to live forever with Jesus Christ. We get to rule and reign with him forever. And then the final end result is that the wicked are removed from this universe forever and ever and ever. And they find their place in hell forever and ever and ever. So now when we come back here to verse number 19, the, as these judgments are being poured out. This is so significant right here. We see something very important in the temple of heaven. And what do we see? Look real closely. What do you see? What is it? What do you see there? Do you see the Ark of the Covenant? Thank goodness that the Ark of the Covenant is there. Because in the midst of all of these judgments, it's the Ark of the Covenant that gives us great hope. That's where our hope is. Without the presence of the Ark, everyone from Adam on would be doomed to hell. But when we see the Ark, we know that there's hope. Now let me explain to you what I'm trying to say right there. In the Old Testament, what did the Ark signify? You remember the ark signified the very presence of God with his people. When the ark moved, the people moved. And, and for a good part of Israel's history, they wanted to be near the ark because the ark represented the very presence of God. And, it, it, they, and his presence, and the ark was symbolic in the fact that his presence wasn't based upon merit. He wasn't with them because they deserved uh, for him to be with them. He was with them because of his mercy. And his, where did his mercy come? His mercy came through the sacrificial system. I mean, think about the ark. The ark was this wooden box overlaid in gold. And on top of the ark were these two 
sets of angel wings, which was a picture of what? Why were the angel's wings there? Because it was a picture of the heavenly ark. And on that ark, on the top of the ark, you remember what was on the top of the ark? The mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would come into the temple and he would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat as atonement for the sins of Israel. So the presence of the ark and the blood of the sacrifice gave them a relationship with the Lord and gave them the protection of the Lord. They gave them the covering of the Lord. And under the old covenant, as long as they obeyed the Lord, the Lord was with them. But it was all based upon mercy. And then inside the ark, remember what was inside the ark? Those tablets that Moses had brought down from Mount Sinai. The tablets which contained the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. Those tablets were inside the ark. Now it's interesting when you go to the book of uh, Chronicles. First, I believe it's First Chronicles chapter 7, 8, no, maybe 9. You see there where Solomon's temple, when he put the ark into the temple, there was only one of the artifacts in there, and that was the set of stones, um, the set of tablets. Aaron's rod and the jar of manna were gone. Now, I wonder why they were gone. Oh, how would God let, why would God let them be gone? Because remember, they had, they had done all sorts of evil things. The ark had gotten in the hand of the Philistines, and the Philistines had played around with it. Then it had ended up in the hands of, a, of an Israelite, and, and, and the ark was just bounced around as if it was nothing. They didn't see that ark as holy as they should see that ark. And, and it cost, one of the guys touched the ark in the wrong way, and God struck him down dead. And what, what reason God struck him down dead was to remind them how holy this ark was and how important it was to their history. But anyway, at the time of the tabernacle, the, there, there was the tablets inside, but there also was a jar of manna. Now, what was the jar of manna there for? To remind them of God's provision. It was God who fed them from heaven. That's what made them special. They didn't just eat any ordinary food. They ate manna from heaven. And then also in the tabernacle was the rod of Aaron. And it always bloomed. It never quit blooming. It never died. And why did it quit blooming? Why? Because it was representative of the life of God, the everlasting life of God that never dies. And so you see the importance of the ark to the Israelites? Without the presence of God, without the atonement, the day of atonement, without the manna, without God's righteousness, that which, which is what the law represented, without God's life, they were doomed to judgment just like every other nation was doomed to judgment. Now, there are several interpreters who believe that there's a temple in heaven like the temple on earth. And very similar. And somehow that God has retrieved all of those relics and he's brought them to heaven where they are now. And so what John is seeing right here is the actual Ark of the Covenant that was in the tabernacle and in the temple, in Solomon's temple, maybe even in Herod's temple before the Romans destroyed it. Uh, 
I don't buy that interpretation at all. Remember what we're told in Hebrews chapter 8. We're told that the artifacts of the temple are only copies or shadows of the real things that are in heaven. And the Ark of the Covenant, I don't believe, is any exception. That golden box that the Israelites carried around out in the wilderness was only a copy of something much more glorious in heaven. So when I come to this picture of heaven and I want to look at the heavenly things, I'm going to be not going to be looking for some golden wooden, wooden box. Now that's probably, probably was pretty spectacular to look at, probably a glorious sight. But I'm going to be looking for something much, much, much more, infinitely more glorious than that little wooden box. And so when John sees, looks into heaven in this verse, and he sees this heavenly temple, he's looking into the holiest of holies in the very presence of God, he's not looking at shadows anymore. He's looking at the real thing. And he sees something much more glorious than a wooden box. He sees the real Ark of the Covenant. And he sees it not surrounded by two golden wings of angels. He actually sees the Ark of the Covenant surrounded by angels, real angels, living angels. And when he looks at the Ark and he sees the Ark, he looks, let me tell you who he looks at. He doesn't see a box. He sees the Lord himself. Because Jesus Christ is the Ark of the Covenant. You think about it. He's our mercy seat. He's our mercy seat. He bled and died on that cross. And his blood came to heaven, sprinkled in heaven, sprinkled on me and you so that we can be covered and all our sins could be paid for both past and present and our lawless and sinless deeds he remembers no more. It's the cross. He sees, John doesn't see the cross, but he sees the Lord who died on the cross. Look, I don't cling to the old rugged cross. I cling to the Ark of the Covenant. I cling to Jesus Christ. He's my mercy seat. And it's his blood that saves me. And he's the law incarnate. He's the righteousness. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God in him. And so he gives us the law as part of this new nature that he gives us. And when we look at the Ark of the Covenant, when we gaze upon him, when we spend time with him, we become more righteous. It's his righteousness that makes us righteous, not the righteousness of the law. The law is good, but the law can never save us. It was only a tutor to bring us to the Ark of the Covenant, to bring us to Jesus Christ. And he's the manna that came down from heaven. He's the manna that we feed on, heavenly food. If you're here today and you're looking pretty spiritually pale, like some kind of Somalian who hasn't eaten in months, 
spiritually. Let me tell you what, it's because you're not partaking of the man of God. You're eating of the man of this world. You set yourself on partaking of the man of God, man of God, and you're of the man of God, and you're going to be, you're going to be, you're going to be full of the Spirit of God. You're going to be full of spiritual things. And he's Aaron's rod that always blooms. He's our everlasting life. In him is everlasting life. And friends, is his presence, his presence that saves us. That's why when John looked into the holiest of holies, when he looked into the temple of heaven and he saw the ark of the covenant, the true ark of the covenant, he found peace and he found joy. Because no matter how, even in these thunderings and lightnings and hells and all of these things, he knew terrible, this earthquake that shakes even heaven, he knew that he has hope. We know that we have hope no matter how bad things get on this earth because we are in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so he's the ark in heaven. And he will be the ark on this earth in the millennium and thereafter forever and ever and ever and ever. Pretty good deal, I say. You know, I believe the Nazis were on to something when they were chasing after the ark and its power. Because let me tell you something, there is power in the ark of the covenant. Infinite power. Jesus Christ, the Ark of the Covenant, is the creator of all things. We're told in Colossians 1.17, by his power he sustains all things. He holds all things together. He, it's his power that holds this universe together. It's his power that holds the governments of this world together. It's the power that holds you and I together. He holds our marriages together, our families together. It's his power it's, there's power in the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the dunamis, the dynamite of God unto salvation for those who believe. There's power in the gospel. If your gospel is just a few words, human words, there's no power in that. But in the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it is full of power. It's full of the dunamis of God and all of it's in the ark. But here's where the Nazis went wrong. The Nazis were looking for the power. They could care less about the ark. They were looking for the power. They just wanted the power. And they didn't want Jesus Christ. They wanted the devil. They wanted to serve the devil. And there's a lot of people in this world who seek the power instead of seeking the ark. We seek the ark. And because we seek the ark, we have the power. You know, it seems like you, if it seems like you're missing power in your life, I can tell you why. I can tell you why. And you're begging God for the power in your life. And you're not getting that power. You want the power to witness. You want the power to raise your family. You want the power to do your job. You want the power to serve God. You want the power to do great things for God. And there's no power. And you wonder why there's no power. Let me tell you why. Because you're seeking the power. 
And if you seek the power, you're not going to get anything. You seek the ark, and you'll find the power. You'll find the power to save you. You'll find the power to sanctify you. You'll find the power for service. You'll find the power to get through tough times. You'll find the power to be glorified. And Christ will glorify you forever. Jesus Christ. He's our ark of the covenant. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word, and we thank you for the lesson that you teach us through your word, this great lesson here, Lord. So many of us get this wrong. We, we seem to be living impotent, powerless lives, Lord, and, and, and we want to serve you. We want to do the right thing, and we can't seem to do it. And we keep seeking the power to do it, and the power doesn't come, Lord. Lord, show us the mistake that we're making. We need to be seeking you. We need to be seeking a relationship with you. That's what you want, Lord. That's what we need. And then the power comes with that. Lord, help us to change our focus, Lord, to truly change our focus to seek you, to seek you. You're in our hearts. You're in heaven. You're on this earth. Lord, we just ask that you make that our focus. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their Savior, Lord, I just ask that you show them who you are, the true Ark of the Covenant, that in you, Lord, is truth and righteousness and, and, and food to, to eat, Lord, and, and heavenly food, and, Father, mainly our salvation, that mercy seat where we can come and be saved and all our sins be paid for. And, Lord, you tell us you cast them as far away as the east is from the west when we come to you. Father, I just ask today that, that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that, that they make that choice to choose you. It's a simple thing, Lord. We just chase after you. We chase after you. We seek you instead of seeking the world. And we find that power, that power to save us, to sanctify us, and even to glorify us, Lord. Help us to find that. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.